Mr. Runyon as much time as he possibly can have here. Uh, it's really a pleasure for me to um, introduce our speaker. Um, Alan, of course, has been with us on other occasions. Um, he came and, and spoke to us about the trials of Jesus, and there's a sense in which he needs no introduction. Um, but this is a very important life, uh, well, week in the life of this congregation in the diocese. So I just need to say something about that. Um, most of you know that our speaker today, Alan Runyon, is the attorney. He's my longtime friend, but he is an attorney um, out of Beaufort, South Carolina, and he is the lead attorney for the Diocese of South Carolina and its litigation with the Episcopal Church. And as I announced in the early service, and we'll make you aware of at the later service, uh, we have a very important date coming up this Wednesday. December the 8th is going to be oral arguments before the South Carolina Supreme Court. And this is probably the last, um, the end of our long trying litigation period. I know many people think this is just going to go on forever, um, but that is probably not going to be the case. Um, this is probably the last time that we will appear before the South Carolina Supreme Court. They will hand down a decision and we will live with that decision, whatever it is. A reminder to you all, and I think you already know that, that as the church, it is the body of Christ. It's not bricks, mortar, and stone. So whatever the decision is that is handed down by the South Carolina Supreme Court, St. Philip's is alive and well, and will continue to be alive and well, and continue to be a light to carry on the gospel in this community and in the world at large. So we do not fear about that, but nevertheless... Um, one of the questions that is asked in today's passage from Malachi is, where is the God of justice? Well, we're praying that he's going to be in Columbia, South Carolina on December the 8th, I can tell you right now. So uh, Alan is our lead attorney for that, and um, he's going to be making those oral arguments on December the 8th. December the 7th, we are going to have a prayer vigil here on campus in the chapel. I want to encourage as many of you as possible to come and participate in that. We will have a service at noon, so please come and participate in that. This, of course, is vitally important for the future of this congregation. So I encourage you that, the, that this is coming to an end. That's the good side. The bad side is we just don't know what's, what's out there. But what we do know is that the Lord is with us regardless. So we rejoice in that. So it is my pleasure to uh, bring Alan before you. Um, it should be noted that here is Alan. I asked him to come and speak on uh, a presentation that he did in Buford some years ago that was very moving, very powerful, on the star out of Jacob. And uh, I didn't realize that he was going to have to do these oral arguments before the South Carolina Supreme Court, right smack dab in the middle of them. So I called him up and I said, Alan, if you want to pass on this, that's perfectly fine. And he said, no, this will be a happy distraction from all of that. So um, I'm going to ask him to come forward. Alan grew up, um, his family's from South Carolina, but he actually grew up in Africa um, where his parents were missionaries, uh, Baptist missionaries. And then he came here to the United States to be schooled, graduate of the University of South Carolina School of Law. His best accomplishment, and he's got a long list of accomplishments, I can't give them to you all, but his greatest accomplishment was that he married Beth. She's sitting there in the second row. So Beth, just wave your hand so everybody can see you. Uh, we all know that behind every great man, there's an even greater woman. And this is certainly the case with, with Alan Runyon. But Alan is a dedicated and faithful Christian. He's not only studied law, he's been to Oxford University, where he studied theology as well. So um, he's just a wonderful, riveting speaker and teacher, and you're going to be blessed by him today. But I'd like you to bow your heads. I'm going to pray for Alan, and in particular, what he's going to say for us today, but also what's going to take place uh, this Thursday. So let's go ahead. Wednesday. When is it, Alan? Which day is Wednesday. it? Wednesday. Okay. So let's pray. Father, we just come before you with humble and grateful hearts. This is Advent. It is a season of anticipation, a season of preparation, uh, an anticipation of great things that are to come. Advent is a time in which we remember the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in great humility, but it is also a time when we remember that at the end of the age he shall come with power and great glory to judge the quick and the dead. The South Carolina Supreme Court has a motto inscribed over the pediment to the building that says, None higher. But we know there is one who is higher. The King of kings, Lord of lords, and judge of all the earth, and he will do right. 
And so, Father, we pray that you will come and be present before the South Carolina Supreme Court, that as Alan speaks, you will speak through him, that you will move the hearts and the minds of the justices, that they might be sympathetic to our cause, and that we might be granted our property, a property that we have faithfully cared for over the course of over 300 years, and that the great work that you begun at St. Philip's will continue on to completion so that Jesus Christ might be lifted up and that he might draw all men to himself. Bless Alan as he speaks to us today. Fill him with a sense of gratefulness for the opportunity to share your word. Fill us with a sense of gratitude for his willingness to come at this busy time of the year and speak to us. In all things, Lord Jesus, may you receive the honor, the praise, and the glory. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please welcome Alan Runyon. It's hard to know where to begin after that. Um, I have to readjust my thoughts because Jeff has put them on Wednesday. I got to get them back to Sunday. Um, let's start with a word of prayer, please. Most Holy Father, we worship and acknowledge you. Today, through the marvelous symphony of redemption, beginning with your incarnation as Emmanuel, God with us, open our eyes as those of little children to behold wondrous things. Uncover that which is hidden so that your glory may be magnified. In the name of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, we pray. Good morning. Good to have you all here. Um, <clears throat> what we are going to discuss for the next two sessions are likely to challenge your traditional ideas about Christmas. I make no apology for that. My answer is in the words of Matthew and Luke and common reasoning. It, there are many traditional ideas about Jesus' birth that are born of thinking about how you would think as opposed to how the shepherds or the wise men or the Jewish leaders would think. I challenge you as we begin to turn these pages to try to put yourself in the position that they were in because that's the way you have to read Scripture from the standpoint of the person to whom it is written and for whom it is written. So today we're going to look at Jesus' birth and important biblical facts that are often overlooked. Next week, we're going to look at how those facts fit the story of the star out of Jacob as we explore what I like to call the beginning of God's symphony of redemption. Travel back with me in time. It's 3,400 years ago. You're Balak, king of the Moabites. You climb to the top of Mount Peor, and you look across the plains of Moab to the Jordan Valley, and you're stunned. You've been here before. But what you see now is an army of tents with black goatskin uh, tops organized in four separate groups facing a center tent, and they stretch as far as the eye can see. You've heard about this plague of people that have swept up from the Sinai, conquering a king of the Canaanites in the Sinai, sweeping around to your east, coming to your north, conquering King Sion of the Amorites, who had just beaten you not too long ago, also conquering Og, the king of Bashan, a land of giants. This king slept on a king-sized bed that was 13, foot long, 13 feet long. Now here you are, they've been behind you, they've been to your north, and they're right in front of you, and you've got a problem, you think. With a sinking feeling, you know you're next. But there's hope. There's a Baru named Balaam. I've heard about him, and I know what his name means. His name means devourer of people. That's what you need, so you reach out. This is the story that begins the story of the star out of Jacob that ends with the birth of Jesus Christ. Balaam is a contemporary of Moses. He's very well known. He's from the east. 
He's from a place that's on the Turkey-Syria border right now. Archaeology confirms his notoriety at Deir Allah in Jordan. A wall inscription was discovered in 1967, written about 1000 BC, that refers to, quote, the misfortunes of the book of Balaam, the son of Beor, the prophet, a divine seer, was he. History views Balaam ambiguously. The Jews think that he's the one who put Pharaoh up to killing the Hebrew children in Egypt. Philo, a Jewish uh, philosopher who lived from 20 BC to 50 AD, called him a man renowned above all over his skill as a diviner and a prophet. Josephus called him one of the greatest prophets at that time. The Bible, however, doesn't have too many good things to say about Balaam, apart from this little vignette in Numbers Balaam is viewed as an enemy of God. He's in fact slain by the Israelites. He's referred to as an evil man who God defeated. And in the New Testament, there are three passages about Balaam. None of them are positive. So what on earth is going on with this man who is viewed by the Bible as someone who is evil and the Israelites? Well, Balak needs help. So he asked him to come. I'm not going to go into the details of the story in Numbers 22 and 24. They're very interesting. They include the talking Jenny and everything else that gets him there. But the bottom line is he shows up and he announces some blessings instead of curses. Balak, the king, takes him to the top of Bamathbal, a mountain that's not far from Mount Pisgah. And from that mountain, he can see a portion of the Israelites, and he's asked to curse him. But instead, he says, let me die their death, the death of the righteous. Then Balak takes him to Pisgah. He didn't get what he wanted then, so he takes him to Pisgah, which is probably Mount Nemo. And there, he says, instead of a curse, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. So then he decides, well, he hasn't seen all of Israel, so I'm going to take him to Mount Peor, which is a little bit further to the west than Mount um, Pisgah. He takes him there. From there, he can see all of it. And he asks him for a curse. He says, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. No curse yet. So Balak says, go home. I really don't want any more. And Balaam says, but just a moment. There's one more that I'd like to share with you. Numbers 22, 22. 24.2 says, from the top of Peor, which is analogous to this, although this was taken from the top of Nebo, but it would be a similar view. He turned his face toward the wilderness and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he spoke his message. And this was his message. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That prophecy was fulfilled with the birth of Jesus Christ. And then Balaam goes home. He goes back to the east. The east is in the region of Babylon or southern Persia. And that's all we have for Balaam in this story. But let's fast forward about 800 years to when Daniel has been taken captive in the Babylonian captivity. He's been carried off to uh, Babylon, and he rises to greatness because he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, although the wise men are unable to do so. And he's ultimately placed in charge of the wise men in Babylon. Lots of, lots of stories going there with Babylon. I'm not going to bore you with Daniel 9, besides which I'm not sure I can interpret all of Daniel, Daniel 9. Uh, but Daniel 9 does have in its verses... Um, a revelation made by the angel Gabriel to Daniel after Daniel's prayer for repentance for the people of Israel. And the revelation is of the coming of the anointed one. So if you put these kind of things together, you come up with Balaam is from the east. Daniel is in the east. Balaam was a wise man of sorts. Daniel is in charge of the wise man. Daniel knows about a coming of the anointed one and even has a messianic timetable in chapter 9, although I'm not sure anybody can interpret it properly. It raises an intriguing question. Is there knowledge being transmitted from Balaam 
about a future star out of Jacob, to Daniel, and ultimately to the wise men, a messianic king, a messianic timetable. But we don't really know the answer to that. We could speculate about it all day long. But there's some logical consistency from the concept of a prophecy by Balaam, a one he did not want to make that blessed these people in Israel, going back and that being transmitted to the wise men around Daniel and eventually finding its way to the wise man that we are going to talk about today. So that takes us to the birth of Jesus. I just love this phrase out of Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come. What an all-encompassing statement about a period in the history of the world where Rome, through Caesar Augustus, has declared the Pax Romana by closing the gates of Janus in 13 BC, he proclaimed that there was world peace. Augustus Caesar has settled down to managing, not conquering. The Parthian empires established in Rome and Parthia have settled into a coexistence that will last for 200 years. Herod has taken the throne in Judea. In short, the stage is set for the birth of Jesus Christ and for the expansion of Christianity. So that takes us to the biblical record. First of all, I, I want to I say a couple of things about the biblical record. First of all, I put them in chronological order. This begins with Luke. They're on a handout. Ordinarily, we would be reading that, but time doesn't permit. So what I'm going to do is that I'm going to take specific parts of these two uh, chapters, chapter 2 in Luke and chapter 2 in Matthew, and point out facts that I think are important to what we're going to be talking about later. The other thing that I would challenge you to do, and I cannot say this enough, most of the attempts to determine Jesus' birth date or what the star was have serious problems because, and this is the great irony, they don't pay any attention to the text in the Bible. The text opens up a whole new vision of what is going on if you pay careful attention to it. And the second problem they have is that instead of letting the text lead you out of it to a result, they read into the text what is not there. And they generally do it from a modern perspective. And that may, modern perspective may be a time of the um, church fathers. It may be in the 18th or 19th century, but it's not a perspective that existed at the time. So here we go. Facts from Luke. Caesar Augustus, Octavian, was emperor. In fact, he was the first Roman emperor. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the Roman province of Judea because Joseph's family was of the lineage of David, and so they had to be registered there. There was a registration census. There is some belief that this was a taxation census. I'm not going to get into the details of that. It would take another 20 minutes. But the important component to that is the Greek word for when this occurred could either be read when or before Quirinius was governor's, governor of Syria. He was governor of Syria in 6 AD, so you see right away, if it was when he was governor, that doesn't seem to fit with Jesus' birthday. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Shepherds came to Jesus from the fields. Why? Literally, because an angel evangelized them. An angel brought good news of great joy. A savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the only time in the Bible those three words appear together. A Savior who is Christ the Lord was born. How were they going to know this? Well, their sign was going to be a baby in swaddling clothes in a feed trough in a manger. Going to Matthew, first of all, from the perspective of the wise men, Herod the Great was a king. This is not the Herod who was king when Jesus was alive. Well, obviously, he, <laughs> I'm not going to use the word alive. This was not the same Herod when Jesus was crucified. This is his father, Herod the Great. Um, there's a lot to be said about Herod the Great, but the, the best thing you can say about him, he was just evil in so many different ways. 
a great builder. He built a lot of things. He was really good at that, but he was an evil man. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem to worship the king of the Jews, believing that he had been born. They came because they saw his star, not a star, his star when it rose, or in the east, or literally at the rising. His star meant to them that a king had been born in Judea. They didn't know where in Judea he had been born. That's why they went to the capital. That's why they went to Jerusalem. They were told he went, they should go to Bethlehem. The reason they were told that is because Herod asked the Sanhedrin, where is the Messiah to be born? And he was, they were told, uh, Herod was told, quoting Micah chapter 5, Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah is to be born. Then the star went before and rested over where Jesus was. When the wise men got there, he was in a house. From the standpoint of Herod, Herod and all of Jerusalem were troubled. That word in Greek is tarasso, literally means to agitate still waters. That word is used of the disciples when they saw Jesus walking on water. It's a state of from being terrified to being uncertain to being troubled by what the wise man said. Neither Herod nor the Jewish leaders knew there was a birth. Let that thought sink in a little bit. They didn't know there was a birth. Herod was also troubled because the question was, where is he that was born king of the Jews? In Herod's mind, this is a conspiratorial man. He has killed his two sons. He killed his wife, Mariam, and, and put her in honey so he could look at her after death. He died of a disease that I won't describe because we're in polite company. But he was, he, he, he died like he lived. That's about the best way that I can put it for Herod. But this is the same Herod that Mark Antony and Octavian had walked onto the floor of the Senate in Rome and proclaimed king of the Jews. Now he is sitting there hearing these men from the east who aren't just, you know, stragglers. These are supposed to be intelligent people who are coming and saying, where is he who's born king of the Jews? To a conspiratorial-minded Herod, in his head came the thought, I can't have that. So Herod is troubled. He asked the Sanhedrin where he's to be born. And then he asked the wise men, interestingly, secretly, and ascertained what time the star had appeared. That's the Hebrew word akrivo, which means to determine, excuse me, the Greek word, determine with precision. So Herod determined with precision when they had seen the star. And then, of course, you know the story, the wise men didn't come back, and Herod was enraged, and so, tying that previous sentence to this one, he killed all the male children two and under in Bethlehem according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Very, very important clue that we'll see come back a little bit later. So what are some common errors that we see in, in the story of Christmas? Well, the first one, the most obvious one from the text, is the wise men and the shepherds didn't see Jesus at the same time. They're different times. Jesus was in a manger, and he was in a house. And if you just think through the logical part of that progression, that kind of makes sense. The shepherds were in the fields, the angels came, they went, and then the wise man saw what they saw. Well, it took a little while to get there, so logically they wouldn't have been there at the same time. Second thing is there's really no factual basis to say there were three wise men, only more than one. The Greek word is plural. Um, the wise men were not kings. That was transformed. Well, they may have been, but there's no proof that they were. That was transformed in the 6th century. Uh, three, probably associated with the three gifts, but really no basis to say there were three of them. Uh, some of the earliest drawings of the Magi in the catacomb shows many as four, and the Eastern Church tradition is that there were 12. The other tradition is that, that they came on camels. Well, if you were coming from the east, from either 
Babylon or Persia, you probably came on horses. And you probably came with a bunch of people. It wasn't just two or three of you, you had to have security. So we're talking about a group of people who came, which could also explain why Herod was troubled. I've got these armed men out there. They're telling me about a new king. I don't particularly like that idea. The signs were not common to the two different groups. Two different signs to two different groups. To the shepherds, a swaddled baby in a manger. To the wise man, his star, whatever that was. Now this should ask you to wonder why were these two groups the only groups to be given a sign of Jesus' birth? An intriguing question, a theological question, with an intriguing answer. But to get it, we're going to fast forward and we're going to go see the Apostle Paul, what the Apostle Paul told the Romans and the Ephesians. We begin in, in Romans uh, 9, and Paul is talking about his anguish for his brothers, the Israelites, the children of Israel, because he's from their race, and according to the flesh, so is Jesus Christ. But, Paul is telling in an anguished capacity his brothers, not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. He's now beginning to, to theologically transfer what's going on here. The children of God are not children of the flesh, that is, descendants of Abraham. Rather, they're children of the promise. So there's a disconnect between a child of the flesh and a child of the promise. Then he quotes from Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And then, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, quoting from Isaiah, only a remnant of them will be saved. So Paul is breaking ground on the issue of just because you are a, a descendant in the flesh of Abraham does not make you a descendant or a relative of Jesus Christ spiritually. He's, he's breaking that to them. But what is this mystery? Well, in Ephesians, he says, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is now into the heart of God's redemptive plan in terms of who. It's not the old covenant. It's the new covenant. So now let's go back to Jesus' birth and let's look at where this revelation begins. The question is, why did God announce Jesus' birth to shepherds and wise men? Why not his chosen people? I mean, the shepherds, unclean. They're at the bottom rung of Jewish society, contrary to the time when David was a shepherd. They are on the same plane as tax collectors, and some, some people would say prostitutes. And then you have the wise men, these, guys, these foreigners from some other country who are Gentile pagans. Really? Bottom of Jewish society? Gentile pagans from somewhere else. Wouldn't God have chosen to make the opening announcement of his redemptive plan to his chosen people? The ones he did battle for when they entered the promised land. The ones that Balaam could not help but bless. The ones who had studied the prophecies about the coming Messiah. The ones who told Herod where to look. Yeah, here's the mystery. He did announce his birth to his chosen people those of the new covenant, the Israel of God, the Israel of the promise, the Jewish remnant are the shepherds, and the Gentiles are the wise men. These are members of the same future body, the representatives of the future church, the remnant and the Gentiles, a church that would begin growing at Pentecost, indeed is growing today, and one day will be fully born at the second advent. This, these announcements to the shepherds and the wise men are the opening strains of God's symphony of redemption. Well, that takes us to another interesting point, kind of a sideline, but, but necessary and interesting, and that is what I would call revelation in the wisdom paradox. 
A paradox contains at least two parts that seem incapable of being true at the same time. Although the parts may seem contradictory on the surface, a closer study should reveal otherwise. There are many, 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 many biblical paradoxes, which makes sense. We live in an upside-down world. The true world is in a different way. Ours is upside. That's kind of the concept behind paradoxical experiences. The greatest paradox, I think, is the Trinity. The second greatest, and you can argue it's the greatest, is the Incarnation. A divine human. So that's, that's a paradox. The Bible is filled with them. Here's the wisdom paradox. Jesus has been, in Matthew eleven twenty five has been denouncing those towns where he showed his miracles to and comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah's got a better chance than you do because you know the truth because you've seen my works, but you reject it. And then he says, he declares to his father, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children, which in Greek simply means the simple ones. How does that play out in this story? Here's how. Balaam, worldly wise Gentile, but spiritually corrupt. He intends harm, but he prophesies truth. The Magi, worldly wise Gentiles, but spiritually innocent, to whom the star reveals truth. Herod and the Sanhedrin, wise Jews, religiously wise, otherwise wise, but spiritually corrupt. Truth is hidden. The shepherds, worldly simple Jews, but spiritually innocent, and the angels reveal truth. God turns the concept of earthly wisdom upside down, just like he turned the concept of the children of God or the children of Abraham upside down with the new covenant. So, some common questions. When was Jesus born? And I suppose a more, a deeper question is why should we care? I mean, isn't it the fact of his birth and the fact of his death and resurrection that's what we, what has theological meaning? Yes, that's correct. So why should we care about the date of his birth? Well, I think any time you study the acts of God, whatever they are, there is wisdom to be gained in the depths of what those acts are. They are uniform. There is no inconsistency. If you, if you, if you were to, it's hard to compare this properly to an onion, but I'm going to do that. You take an onion, it is symmetrical. It is the same thing all the way through, but it's in layers. There are truths about how God acts that are layered truths, all of which are true. But I suppose, having looked at this um, as long as I have, that dating Jesus' death in the end will reveal all the more the majesty of God. And I hope you'll see that when we complete that circle next week. The second question is, why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25? What was the star that drew the wise men? How could a star that rose in the east lead them to the west? Pretty good question. And the even better question is, how could it come to rest over where the child was? All questions that have uh, caused a lot of consternation and concern over the centuries, and I'm looking out at you and you're thinking, yeah, and you're going to tell us you have an answer to that? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to tell you I think I have an answer to that, yes. <laughs> Let's look at the historical approaches to dating Jesus' birth. First of all, you don't see anywhere in the Bible, or you don't see anywhere in any commentators, that the apostles celebrated a specific date. It's not there. Of all the people who were most likely to know when it was, it would be them. But you don't see them celebrating a date. 
Secondly, in the uh, time of the early church leaders, about 150 to 300 AD, many church leaders felt it was a, a pagan thing to celebrate Jesus' birth on a specific day. But, being human that they were, some of them went on to suggest some dates. January 2, 6, March, April, May, November, and December 25. The interesting thing about these, 7 of 11 are in the spring. Let that settle in a little bit. Charles Spurgeon, in preaching his sermon, Joy Born at Bethlehem, on December 24, 1871, said, We have no superstitious regard for time and seasons. Certainly we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christmas. Really? We find no scriptural word whatsoever for observing any day as the birthday of the Savior. And consequently, its observance is a superstition because it is not of divine authority. Now notice what Spurgeon is doing. He's not saying don't worship the fact that Jesus Christ was born. He says don't worship the day. Important. Because that's what we do in our society. We worship the day. In hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars. Nevertheless, he says in his sermon, since we celebrate not the date, but the fact of his birth, December 25 is as good as any other day. So he's making the central point. Don't get lost on a date. Get immersed in a fact. And I, I love the way he concludes before he goes to that last thought. He says, if there's any day we're pretty sure it's not, that would be December the 25th. <laughs> and I will tell you, and, and hopefully you'll come to this conclusion, there is no evidence at all that Jesus was born on December 25th. There's speculation. The truth, the truth of the matter is, if we, if we put all of these concepts into a bucket, there are levels of speculation in all of them. But I think what I've got to share with you is intelligent speculation. So I will share it with you. So let's look at the concept of dating Jesus' birth and how we got to where we are. The earliest day reference for December 25th was 354 AD. Um, it was selected for reasons historians believe were unrelated to Jesus' birth. The Roman festival of Saul Invictus and the cult of Mithras were held on December 25th. And some historians believe that Christians thought we, we need to co-opt these pagan days, so we're going to put Jesus' birth on that day. Officially, 440 AD, Pope Julius I proclaimed it was December the 25th. And then an interesting thing happened. That's the date of Jesus' birth, but we really didn't have an era um, we could go into discussing the Julian calendar created in 45 BC and how that calendar continued until the Gregorian calendar in the 1500s, but we never really had a BCAD concept until a monk named Dionysius Exegus, also known as Dennis the Little, decided that we needed to create eras that turned on Jesus' birthday. So we need a before Christ and A.D. after Christ. So he, he wanted to set the date. So he did. So what he did, he added up the links of the emperor's, Roman emperor's reigns since Jesus' birth, and he came up with December 25, 1 B.C. Now he didn't, he didn't pick December 25. Understand, somebody else had already picked that. He picked the year. He said, okay, this is going to be 1 B.C., but he had a problem. Uh, the first problem was he just assumed it was December 25th. The second problem, he made a mistake. And the mistake became really clear when you realize that if Jesus were born on December 25, 1 B.C., then that would make Herod's death in 4 B.C., and we know from the text that Herod was still alive. So that's a problem. Nobody's ever really confronted it. I mean, in reality, what do you do? You can't unravel dates. You need something fixed to rely upon, so you rely upon it. But that's, that's part of the mystery of trying to figure out when Jesus was born. Well, so let's, let's try to see if we can figure out the year. 
And let's start where we always ought to start. Let's start with the Bible. Funny thing, we should do that. Matthew says Jesus was born in the days of King Herod. So Herod was still alive. All right. When did Herod die? Well, there's been quite a lot of argument about that. But the overwhelming scholarship based on the concepts that Josephus, the historian, laid out is that he died in 4 BC. Josephus says that Herod died just after a lunar eclipse, but before the Passover. Now there is such a lunar eclipse on March 13, 4 BC, but there's also a lunar eclipse, and there, there, also, there are four lunar eclipses that were visible in Jerusalem from 5 BC to uh, 1 BC. This was one of the four. Why this one? Because from other sources, Archelaus, the son of Herod, took his father's place in 4 B.C. So there's a reason to look at 4 B.C. as the point when Herod died. There's a lot of other circumstances that feed into that. We don't have time for it. But the overwhelming scholarship is that Herod died between March 13 and April 10, 4 B.C. Therefore, Jesus was born before March 4 B.C. I can see the wheels turning. I can see the about 30 years old. I can see the, they see all these wheels turning out there. We're coming to that. Um, I hope you can see this. It's tough for me to see it. So this is kind of a chart that gives us a focus on probabilities based on, based on what we know and some that we don't. Herod lived from 37 B.C. Excuse me, Herod was king from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. We know that John the Baptist was born when Herod was still king. So John the Baptist had to be born before Herod died. We don't know when that was, but we know it was before 4 B.C. There was a registration census, in effect, that had started in 8 B.C., um, and lasted a couple of years. This was a, a census that was over the entire Roman population. There was one in 27 that Augustus did, one in 8 and one in 6 AD. We know that Herod ordered children two and under to be killed. Well, if he died in 4 BC, then at a minimum, that would have gone back two years from his death. We don't have to assume that it was then. That's the latest it could have been. It could have been that the, the estimate would go back two years from, say, 5 B.C. or 6 B.C., but it's a, there's a two-year window there. We know that Jesus was about 30. This is, this is an interesting one on this one. If you, if you look at the uh, historical statements about what about 30 means, I mean, if you are a, a living in first century and you look at somebody and you say, well, he's about 30. What is he, 31? Is he 28? Is he 32? There's no way to really pin that down. So this estimate is based on the idea that from about 27 to 33 might fall within the idea of about 30. So when he began his ministry, he was somewhere in that range. How precisely, we just don't really know, except it was about 30. That would take us on the outer edge back to 6 BC as the possible time frame. So you can make a rational estimate of Jesus' birth somewhere between, you could probably say 8 B.C. and 4 B.C., but I'm going to say between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C., and just based on the evidence that we have. The problem at that point is that's so far, that's, we can't go any farther than that to discern the date without resort to other facts. Um, the only thing that might tell us is by trying to find out what the star was and having found that out how does it fit these facts so that takes me to a couple of points that we're going to end on before we go next week and look at it deeper the question to be asked I think is how would God reach the Magi 
in a way that was not known to anybody else, but was familiar to them. That's the fact that you've got to deal with. Now, God is all about reaching people where they are all the time. And it doesn't really matter where you are. You could be on death row. You could be, in theory, you could be Hitler. You could be in a lot of different places. and God knows how to reach you. And I want to just give you some examples that should be familiar to you because you have Jeff Miller as your rector. Um, I want to look at Apostle Paul examples because I, I see him as the first apologist and a very skilled one at that. If you look at Paul's interaction with unbelievers, he looks for points of contact to gain a hearing for the gospel. And he does it wherever he is. He does it with Jews, but if he's doing it with Gentiles or Greeks, he does something differently. So here's an example. Acts 17, Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica. What does he do? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Logical. Jews read the scriptures. He's going to use the scriptures to reason with them as well. If you look at Acts 14, and you've got Gentiles in Lystra, what does he do? He uses general revelation. Look at the world around you. Isn't this amazing what has been created? What does he do in Acts 17 when he confronts the Athenians and the concept of an unknown God? This is the one that's actually the most startling of all. Paul uses poems from pagan poets. He uses a poem from Epimenides. For in him we live and move and have our being. And he uses one from Aratus, for we are his offspring. These are all points of contact with an existing culture, an existing society that at first blush would seem to be foreign to Christianity. But they're tools. That's how you reach people where they are. So I asked the question, could his star have been something we would never suspect? God reached the shepherds where they were in the fields. And he used something of great meaning to a Jewish shepherd, an angel. God's missionary announcement reaches people where they are. And he used the star a sign important to them, but not to anybody else. A sign that would draw them to Judea. I want to close by just sharing a little story, a vignette with you, that illustrates this in modern day terms. There's a, there's a church in Abidjan, West Africa, that was founded by a person who ultimately got there through the Koran. In 1969, my father and mother were missionaries in Dakar, Senegal. Now, Senegal is an 80% Muslim country. So the first thing you do when you try to reach Muslims, you don't go build a church. That's not a really good idea. You figure out some other way to reach them. So they created a reading center, populated with books mixed in, some Christian literature as well, and, and talked to students next to an institution of higher learning. Their first convert, was a man named Sise Alkalu. He was a son of an imam who is a religious leader. He became a Christian, was promptly beaten and kicked out of his house. But Sise um, started to work at the center. And Sise developed a friendship with a guy named Dion Robert, who was from the Abidjan, was from Abidjan in the Ivory Coast. And Dion became a Christian from Sise. Dion takes his wife and his daughter and they go and form a church in Abidjan in 1975. In 2010, that church in all of its cell groups had almost 200,000 members. 12,000 in the church proper. 18,000 church cells. 685 new churches, 293 full-time missionaries. Literally, they had mission spots in Europe, in the United States, and in Asia. 
You know how that came about? Because because my father used the Quran and talked, as he say, about Esau, Jesus in the Quran, and told him who he really was. That's how that came about. It all began with the Quran. Jesus reaches us where we are. No matter what our cultural context is, no matter what our religious context is, and thank God he does. And thank God he does. Next week, we're going to look at how this came about with the Magi. What is it that was used by God and his redemptive plan to reach these wise Gentiles, representatives of the future church, representatives of us, really? Let's bow for prayer. Father, the, the majesty of your works is overwhelming. We thank you for it. We thank you for the witness of the incarnation. We thank you for the fact of the incarnation. We thank you for the birth of Jesus so that one day he could shed his blood and could die for us. We thank you for this glorious redemptive plan that we see in its infancy in the beginning strains of this symphony of redemption through the birth of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.